prophetic literature, which by and large, prophetic literature is unique to Scripture entirely. So let's take a look at prophecy or prophetic literature. So we've looked at the importance, we've looked at the history of prophetic material, we've looked at the occurrence in Scripture of historical writings. I've given you a brief overview of the function of prophets. Let's take a look at the characteristics of prophetic material. And let's look at the essence, but the essence of a prophet, God's mouthpiece. Another characteristic is there's a foretelling aspect of prophecy, which means that the majority of the message of the prophet is not prediction. The majority of the prophet's words are not prediction. We would call that foretelling. That's where those historical books that are considered written by prophets, would also come in. So essentially, it's the message for the audience, primarily of the day that the prophet is speaking, foretelling. And even books like Isaiah, much of what Isaiah says, it's basically telling the people to, to repent or to change their ways or change directions. So you have that foretelling element. And what you commonly think of prophecy, you think of it as foretelling. And certainly that element is there, but that is minor, actually, in terms of the overall message of the prophets. So a small percentage of the message of the prophets actually tells the future. The majority of the message of the prophet is foretelling. And that's true of what we have not only recorded outside of the prophetic books, but is true of the prophetic books as well. When Nathan confronted David, there was no predictive element in that prophetic word. It's all forth-telling. But there is that future aspect as well, or predictive aspect. And in most of these passages, a lot of the prophetic material becomes more difficult than the foretelling aspect. Mark, do you have a question? Is that a question between the foretelling and foretelling? You said then that foretelling was more like telling them what to do, not necessarily... Or evaluating the situation. In fact, that Reeve courtroom situation, that would be more foretelling. In other words, exposing this case. There are very little predictive elements in it. And then the foretelling is obviously the predictive aspect. And generally, when we think of a prophet, we think of this foretelling aspect. But that's actually a lesser percentage of what the prophetic message is overall. And again, it's this area where the time element sometimes is hard to pinpoint. In other words, it's predictive, but the time element is fuzzy. And we'll talk a little bit more about this as well, I'm going to expand that. Secondly, there's, in some cases, possibility of multiple fulfillments. I'll talk about that as well. So this foretelling part probably presents more exegetical problems than the foretelling part. It tends to be more vague. Sometimes it even seems contradictory. Different things seem to 
be contradictory to one another. For example, one of the, the major, I guess, seemingly contradictory elements of prophecy in the Old Testament is, is this Messiah going to come as a king, a conquering king? And obviously that's what's favored and that's what probably is more emphasized. Or is he coming as a suffering savior? Which one of these? And it seemed by the time of Jesus Christ, a prominent view was there must be two messiahs because they seem too contradictory to be fulfilled by one person. And what they they overlooked, because the by nature this predictive element is in fact vague, rather than two messiahs, they, they missed the concept that he would come on two occasions and fulfill both aspects. And they both pertain to Messiah, but they seem contradictory. How can you have a, a dying Messiah who also is a conquering Messiah? Seem to be contradictory. So you have all these elements that make that aspect of prophetic material more difficult. There's also some prophetic, predictive material that is conditional. In other words, how Israel responds will dictate how God acts in the future. So you have the conditional element as well. We'll get into more of that. Another characteristic of prophetic material is it tends to be motivational. High level of motivation involved in the prophets. That's part of their purpose. They convict of sin. That's one thing they do. Secondly, they rebuke those that are in sin, the culture, and particularly the kings. Remember I said they're the ones that confront kings, so they rebuke kings. The classic example, Nathan and David. They call for repentance, number three. There's usually always a call to change, repentance, after the rebuke. There's also exhortation to follow a certain path, usually along the lines of the repentance. So it's motivational. There's also, fifthly, encouragement. Encouragement that God will remain faithful in spite of the nation's unfaithfulness. God will continue to honor his unconditional covenants regardless of whether Israel has violated the conditional covenants or not. So there's encouragement along those lines. And there's also comfort. God will ultimately bring everything to consummation. So we have comfort, number six, in terms of motivation. So motivation of conviction, motivation of rebuke, motivation of repentance, motivation of exhortation, motivation of encouragement, and motivation of comfort. Let's take a look at some principles. We've looked at the importance, the history, the occurrence, the function of prophets, the characteristic of prophecy, and principles. You can probably guess the first one. What is the number one and primary principle that we apply here? Very good, very good. Or everything that we've been talking about in this course. Summarizing it by take a literal approach. Take a literal approach. So, some of the major things that you want to make sure that you deal with in terms of the literal approach, make sure you have the context. Make sure you understand the historical background of that prophecy because it's intimately tied with that situation. 
So in order to understand the minor prophets, you have to understand what's going on in First and Second Kings, latter part of First Kings. Context, history. Another important element that you need to take into account is the metaphorical principle because a lot of prophetic material also uses poetic material. So all the things that we talked about, but particularly context, history, and metaphorical principle. Also, progress of revelation. When is this recorded? When is this prophetic piece recorded? And when is it written? And you have to take into account progress of revelation in interpreting. But all the others. Now, you can look. Let's expand this literal idea. You can look and see how the New Testament writers, how did Jesus interpret prophetic passages? How did they take them? And everywhere you look you get the indication that they took these prophetic passages literally and they interpreted them literally. You don't see a spiritualizing, you don't see a non-literal approach. Pentecost, who is considered an authority in eschatology, says the following. He says, In the field of fulfilled prophecy, it is not possible to point to any prophecy that has been fulfilled in any way other than literal. And what he means, grammatical, historical, contextual. And as you summarized, what interpreting it with a view to the author's intended meaning. And that's what we mean by literal. Dwight Pentecost. Things to come, book. And here's just some example. So, basically, in interpreting the basic principles we've already talked about, number two, secondly, this seems to be the way that the New Testament treats Old Testament prophecy. And just if you have an example here, let's look up some of these. Somebody look up Isaiah 1. Let's see, where do we leave off? Start with Jim. Jim, Isaiah 11, 1. Mark, let's do 7.14. Micah, 5.2. Patricia, do Psalm 41. Keith, Isaiah 50. Josh, Psalm 22. And Jim, I'm going to give you 34.20 also. Isaiah 11.1. 1. you have that one? Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Okay, Isaiah is predicting the lineage of Messiah, and we won't look it up, but if you look up Matthew 1, verses 1 and 6, he traces the genealogy and the lineage of that shoot, or that descendant, and what he's basically doing is saying that Isaiah 11.1 1 is fulfilled literally, in other words, a real person, a real descendant of Jesse. Jesse's in the line of Christ. You got Isaiah 7.14. says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a, virgin a sign. Mm-hmm. A virgin. Will be with child. Will bear a son. She will call his name. Now Matthew, in Matthew 1.23, takes the Isaiah 7.14 passage and basically says that this is fulfilled 
in Mary and Jesus. The virgin is Mary, and she gives birth to Jesus. What about Micah 5.2? Do you have that one, Beverly? The Micah 5.2, you have that one? Though you are little among the thousands of children, yet out of you shall come forth. Okay, and in the context, they're asking, where is Messiah going to come from? That's the question. In Matthew chapter 2.6, and in Micah 5.2, that's the answer that's given. And it gives where the Messiah is to be born, and it specifically says Bethlehem. Not some spiritual thing, but a real geographical location. The, the virgin birth will be take, take place in Bethlehem. Psalm 41.9 Even my close friend whom I trusted, even the share of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Okay, a betrayal is in view in Psalm 41.9. John interprets that betrayal in John 13.18, somewhat as a fulfillment of the Psalm passage. There was a real, a literal betrayal, a real lifting up against someone. Okay, Isaiah 56. You have that one, Keith? I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Okay, so we have several incidents of humiliation outlined in the Isaiah passage. Matthew 26 looks at it as a fulfillment, 26.67 and 27.30, where we have some of those specific aspects, real physical humiliation that took place. In other words, literal literal fulfillment. Psalm twenty two sixteen, Josh, you got that one? The dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Piercing of hands and feet in Matthew twenty seven thirty four. That fulfills Psalm twenty two sixteen. Real nails in real feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Literal. Jim Psalm thirty four twenty. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Okay, and in John 19.36, a specific reference to that and fulfilling Psalm 34.20. And the soldier pierced the side and didn't break the legs because he found out he was dead already. No need to break the legs so that he would suffocate. No bones broken. And there's many, many more. I just gave you a few on there fill up the sheet there. So, if you maintain a consistent hermeneutic with prophetic material, then you'll end up premillennial, as we've said. Last hour, we were looking at the principles of interpreting prophetic genre. And just a reminder, we're talking about principles in addition, although the literal method encompasses all of the principle we talked about, so I just wanted to reiterate and re-emphasize the literal approach. But when it comes to prophetic material, you need to take a real close look at the situation in terms of whether this is a conditional prophecy. A lot of prophecy is conditional, so it depends on the response as to the outcome. And you find this pretty frequent in prophetic material. 
Deuteronomy 28, that's prophetic. Do you remember Deuteronomy 28, blessings and cursings? Were, that's essentially the Palestinian covenant. Certain responses from the nation of Israel is going to bring about certain blessings in the future. And you can evaluate where the nation is historically based on Deuteronomy 28. This is what the prophets do as well. In fact, much of the prophecy of some of the prophets, major and minor, basically measure Israel in terms of Deuteronomy 28. And unfortunately, in most cases, they were unfaithful, so they were experiencing the specific curses that are laid out in Deuteronomy 28. So this conditional element is present in a lot of prophecy. So you need to take into that aspect. There's also this little interesting, and this isn't everywhere, but you encounter this in a few instances that are troublesome and sometimes difficult to interpret. What I describe as this telescoping idea. Let me see if I can illustrate it, and then we'll look at a specific passage. This idea, if you're standing where the prophet is standing, you have a viewpoint concerning a specific prophecy, and I indicate this using a series of circles here. Other people have illustrated it with kind of the mountain peaks, probably seen this, where you have a mountain peak, and then you have a valley, and you have another mountain peak. And the prophet is over here, looking this way. The more common illustration is the prophet standing over here, and he's looking here, and he sees this mountain peak, and then he continues to see that mountain peak. It's easier to visualize it with circles. In terms of history, what he's viewing here, he is seeing all of these as one combined prophecy, when in fact, in some cases, he may be seeing a near fulfillment, and usually they pertain to the coming of Messiah, so uh, he, in one prophecy, may be viewing the first coming, but from his perspective, there's no difference between the first and the second coming of Messiah. So he just sees it in this direction, straight on. And this is the, the kind of the perspective of history here. So I call that a telescoping principle where there are a series of events, maybe a near fulfillment in first coming of Messiah, this would be in an interval of time before the second, or second coming of the Messiah. Turn to Isaiah 9, 6. This is probably the clearest example and let's have Mark read it. Beverly, do you want to put your finger in Isaiah 61, and I'll have you read it. Patricia, why don't you put your finger Acts chapter 2. One writer describes this principle in the following. He says, Biblical prophecy may leap from one prominent peak predictive topography, that's kind of the illustration on the board there, to another without notice of the valley between, which may involve no inconsiderable lapse in chronology. Kind of a complicated way to say what I've drawn on the board and on the slide there. And notice 
Isaiah 6. Mark, you want to read, and I'll have you stop at a certain point. Read uh, the beginning of verse 6. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given. Stop. What do you have in the text? Is that a comma there? Semicolon. Now it's poetic. What kind of poetry is that? Remember from last week? Parallelism. There's parallelism. What kind of parallelism? Oh, it's like the repetitive line. Yes, synonymous. We call that synonymous. Okay. Now there's no period there. There's no stop. There's no saying, and then after a long period of time, there's nothing of that. One sentence, it just continues. But uh, what do we celebrate the, 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 those first two lines? Say it again. A uh, son is what? Read it again. A child will be born to us. A son will be given. Okay. We celebrate what? Incarnation. Christmas. And you hear that, and you see it on Christmas cards. Without stopping, same sentence. Doesn't Isaiah know hermeneutics? Doesn't he understand that you should put a period there and give some explanation? Well, this is the nature of prophecy sometimes. Keep reading. The government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And that's where the period ends, right? Yes. Okay, all the way through verse 7. No interruption. One prophecy, one sentence, all together. That's what the prophet sees. He sees, first of all, there's no near fulfillment, but what he sees is incarnation. And then what does he see? He sees incarnation, and then next he sees kingdom and rulership, Messiah, prominent. No break. See the telescoping aspect of that? And there's no in-between. There's there's no 2,000 years of church history in there. So from his perspective, one prophecy, but it extends over a long succession of time. That's what we call the uh, telescoping principle. Another one is Isaiah 61. And by the way, I should have had you also read. Why don't you, Jim, look up Luke chapter 4. Beverly, read verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now this is messianic. This is Messiah speaking. Keep reading. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken heart. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening. The opening of the to proclaim the acceptance, except that we hear the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all Okay, keep that in the back of your mind. Notice what Jesus does in Luke chapter 4. And keep your finger in that passage and you can see what kind of hermeneutics Jesus uses here. Luke four sixteen through 19. This is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. 
And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And he quotes Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. Keep reading. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recover of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Okay, and then verse 3, he closes the book. Stops reading. In Isaiah, there's no period there. Jesus stops in the middle of a sentence, ripping this passage right out of its context, right? Didn't read the whole sentence. What kind of hermeneutics is that? Supposed to look at complete sentences, right? Jesus stops in the middle, closes the book, or rolls up the scroll. That's interesting there, right? Why does he not talk about the last part? Read the last part again, Beverly. The day of vengeance. And then the comfort that follows the vengeance of God. He doesn't talk about the great tribulation and the second coming and the judgment associated with those things. Why? That's not part of his ministry in the first coming. So he stops in the middle of the verse because the other part He recognizes this telescoping aspect. He's not going to fulfill the day of vengeance. Stops in the middle of a sentence. That comes when Messiah returns, when he brings judgment. When he comes to begin with, it's salvation, coming for redemption, salvation. See that? One sentence again. But fulfillment in different periods of time and in this case, separated by at least 2,000 years, maybe more. See that? Now, there's another principle that is similar to this telescoping idea. It's called the law of double reference. Now, these are different. What we're talking about in the telescoping idea, one prophecy, but different phases of fulfillment in different times different phases of fulfillment in different times. The difference, the law of double reference, is the same prophecy fulfilled multiple times. See the difference? Let me illustrate that in a similar way. The prophet sees one unified fulfillment, and in some cases... There is a near fulfillment. Now, always the initial fulfillments are partial and incomplete. But then you have a another fulfillment, and usually around the first coming, and this is more common, you have usually just two fulfillments. First coming, a fulfillment, and then you have a fulfillment of the same passage a second time, And always, this is the ultimate, this is the complete, this is the total fulfillment, the second one, the last one. And it's usually associated with the second coming. See the difference between the two? Is that like uh, that quote, I think it's in Acts, Josiah, that Joel said in Acts 2? That's the one that Patricia is going to read, Acts chapter 2, yes. Yeah, Acts chapter 2, and there's others as well. But first of all, do you see the difference between the telescoping where you have phases of a prophecy 
fulfilled over different sequences of time, as opposed to this law of double reference, same prophecy fulfilled multiple times. The first fulfillment is incomplete, partial. The second fulfillment is complete and total and final. And let's take a look at Acts chapter 2. We won't read the Joel passage, but Peter, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, is quoting Joel passage, and if you begin in verse 14 there, he's explaining the phenomenon of the day of Pentecost, and he's tying it to the coming of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit partially fulfills what Joel predicted. In fact, this is partly what uh, the New Covenant speaks of. And what Peter is saying, there's a partial fulfillment on the day of Pentecost of Joel chapter 2. Read verse 14 and read all the way, I think it's to verse 20. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And there comes the quote. And he quotes out of Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will drink dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above signs of the on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Okay. What's the main focus of what he's talking about? Remember, on the day of Pentecost, what took place? Something unique in history. Never before. What Peter is saying, this fulfills Something of what Joel is speaking of, this unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That's the main point. And he sees it as a fulfillment near the first coming. Now, the question to ask, did verse 19 take place? I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, sun turned into darkness, etc. Did all of that happen on the day of Pentecost? No record of it historically, no record of it in the book of Acts, no reference back to that any time in the first century. So, what seems to be going on here, and the reason he keeps reading, he could have stopped at verse 18. But I think he reads the passage so you get the full context because what he's really interested in it, it also is verse 21 because this is going to kick off his sermon. And notice in verse 21, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is going to be the explanation of his the rest of his sermon. What took place in the coming of Messiah was for the purpose of people to be saved and he's going to call upon this Jewish audience to respond and believe that Jesus was the Messiah. This outpouring 
is evidence of what the Old Testament predicted concerning Messiah and concerning the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So he reads through verse 21, because that's that's kind of the goal of where he's going to kick off. The main thing is this will, in fact, be fulfilled again. In the book of Revelation, there's going to be another outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In other words, all of this is going to be fulfilled again on a second occasion. And in the book of Revelation, it speaks of these wonders preceding the second coming. So you see a double reference there. So the the emphasis more is probably this double fulfillment of the same prophecy. Two fulfillments of an outpouring, and the second one, which would include every little detail, will be fulfilled at the second coming. You see that? And there's other examples you might consider Malachi, you can just write these in your notes, Malachi 3 and Matthew uh, 17, 1. The, uh, that's the transfiguration. In fact, let's, let's look at Matthew 17. I want you to see that. Because I want you to see, turn to Matthew 17. Everyone just turn to it. main thing I want you to see here is Jesus is the one that seems to give us this double fulfillment idea. It's not just the theologian coming up with this idea and forcing it onto the text. But the occasion here is the transfiguration, and let's read it. Josh, why don't you read 17.1. Now, after six days... And to read two as well. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Okay, there's the context, transfiguration. Now, there's only three disciples here. Peter being one of them. Peter, being a good Jew, is thinking in terms of what he has just announced. He announced the second coming. So he's thinking in terms of the establishment of the kingdom, and he's thinking of prophetic predictions. He's thinking of Malachi that predicts Elijah coming. Where's Elijah? And and notice, let's skip to verse 9. Jim, read. We're in chapter 17. Matthew. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Read 10 as well. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Okay. So they're thinking prophetically. And they're thinking, well, wasn't Elijah supposed to come preceding your coming? They're thinking of the fulfillment of the total package. Where's Elijah? We haven't seen Elijah yet. And how does Jesus answer? Mark, you want to look at that one? Eleven. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Okay. Notice what he says. Jesus is giving us, this is probably the clearest statement of this idea of a double fulfillment. Notice what he says in verse 11. Elijah, future, future tense, is coming 
and we'll restore all things. We'll do everything that the, the, the scriptures teach about Elijah when he returns. Future. Future from the first century. But what does verse 12 tell us? He already came. What? He already came? What he's basically saying is in the form of, well, there's also the divine interpretation in verse 13. You want to read that one, Keith? Then, then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John. Okay. Elijah came as John the Baptist. In other words, the ministry of John the Baptist fulfilled the function, fulfilled what Elijah was to do when he came. It was partial. It was initial. But there will be a day in the future, verse 11, when literal Isaiah will in fact arrive and come. And remember the disciples, there there was Elijah and Moses there. Notice in verse 3, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. So Peter is probably thinking, well, here's Elijah. What happened? I mean, we didn't see Elijah. He's here now, but where, where, where are all the things that are supposed to be fulfilled by Elijah? Jesus is basically saying John the Baptist fulfilled the function in the first coming. Elijah will come and fulfill all things at the second coming. And if you read the book of Revelation during the Great Tribulation, one of those witnesses, those two witnesses, more than likely is Elijah. Make sense? So it's Jesus that essentially gives us this law of double reference. So we have consistent, literal interpretation. Look in the passage to see if there are conditional situations or conditions laid out. Occasionally you'll see this telescoping idea when you find, when you're looking for fulfillment. And we have this idea of double fulfillment or the law of double reference. And a, what is it, fifth principle. What you need to do when you're interpreting, particularly prophetic in the predictive sense, look for harmony. You need to harmonize scriptures. Particularly when you seem to have some contradictions, like you have a suffering Messiah and you have a conquering Messiah. How do you harmonize those? Now, we have an advantage because we already have seen the fulfillment of those passages that pertain to Messiah dealing with the suffering aspect. But if you're in a passage in the Old Testament and you're looking at it from the Jewish perspective, you can see where they might have had difficulty in understanding how Isaiah 53 could be Messiah or Messianic. So you need to harmonize and basically... uh, Look at the totality of what Scripture teaches concerning prophetic events. So harmonize passages. And there's some other minor things that are peculiar to some prophetic passages that uh, we don't need to get into. So those are your major principles. Prophecy will come, or has come, in Scripture in different forms. It can come in the form of dreams, and these are primarily very early in the prophetic scriptures. The first mention of a dream is by a pagan king by the name of Abimelech, if not, if that's not a title itself, with Abraham. 
He had a dream about Abraham. Jacob had uh, at least two dreams that are recorded in Genesis chapter 28, chapter 31. Actually, 31, Laban had a dream. It's not Jacob. Laban. It's about Jacob. And then the probably the better known ones would be Joseph's dreams in Genesis 37 concerning his future and ministry. Solomon had a, a series of dreams. We have dreams in the book of Daniel by pagan kings that are prophetic, that Daniel interprets. They're prophetic. Joseph had a dream concerning uh, the birth of Messiah, virgin birth. He also had a dream concerning going to Egypt and other details there. So we have dreams. Uh, you could include dreams and visions. Paul had visions in the book of Acts, Acts 16.9, to go to Macedonia, 18.9. There's also that fourth telling, the form, this form here, which in some cases doesn't even look like prophecy, but it can come in that form, fourth telling. It can be predictive, we talked about these, where there's clear predictions, that's foretelling. Next, we're going to look at this area. We're going to separate it out. But a form of prophetic material is called typology, biblical types. We'll look at it. Next week, we'll look at parables. Sometimes prophetic material comes in the form of parables. Now, parables can do other things as well. We'll look at them specifically as well. And there's a particular type that is described as apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. It has its unique characteristics in addition to some of the prophetic things that we've talked about already. If we have time, I'll touch on apocalyptic literature. Just ahead of time, much of Daniel is apocalyptic. You could consider the book of Revelation as apocalyptic. Zechariah would be classified as apocalyptic. Parts of uh, Ezekiel. It can come in the form of symbols and symbolic acts, like Jeremiah was commanded to do certain things that were sim symbolic. Those symbolic things that he did were prophetic. Okay, that's prophetic material in general. Any questions on any of that? A subset, as I just mentioned, or a form of prophetic material is what's called typology, biblical types, and these are difficult. Interpreters have struggled understanding them, limiting them, identifying them, so let's kind of get some insight into them and guidelines in understanding typology. First of all, what are types or what is typology? A scholar by the name of Muncher that's how you pronounce is that how you pronounce the German there. It says the following types are the preordained representative relation which certain persons, events, and institutions of the Old Testament bear to corresponding persons, events, and institutions in the new. Kind of complicated, right? Let's see if we can simplify it. I've tried to simplify it. This is more my description. Certain persons, events, or institutions of the Old Testament 
that prefigure by God's design persons, events, or institutions in the New Testament. A little simpler. Saying the same thing. Not as complicated. That's what we mean by biblical types. That's what typology is all about. Certain persons, events, or institutions of the Old Testament. And each one of these little phrases is important. That prefigure. That's the prophecy element. That prefigure, and this is key in setting some boundaries. Prefigure by God's design. Persons, events, or institutions in the New Testament. Everybody got that? Now there's a spectrum of views. And you can find scholars in every one of these camps or schools of interpretation. Before I give you the views, where do we get the word or the idea? In the New Testament, there's a series of words. The main one is tupas. And there's words related to that word, and there's other words that are used somewhat synonymously with the word tupas. Now, let's look up some passages where that word occurs. So if you did a word study, and it only occurs 16 times, by the way, in the New Testament, and most of the time it's not used in the sense that we're talking about here when we're describing typology. Let me give you a couple of passages here. Mark, why don't you start with John 20, verse 25. Beverly, Acts 7, 44. Patricia, Philippians 3, 17. And Jim, do you want to do Romans 5, 14? In every one of these contexts, the word tupas occurs. I'm just going to give you the kind of the representative ways that the word is used. First one is very interesting. In John 20, verse 25, speaking of Jesus in that context, notice what it says, and when he gets to the word, I'll highlight it. Mark, chapter 20, verse 25. John. The other disciples therefore were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of... There it is. Imprint. Tupas. And put my finger into the place of the nails. Place to pass. And put my hand into his side. I will not believe. Okay, that's Thomas. And what he's saying, unless I can see the imprint or the scar, to pass. In other words, something that reminds me of prior event in this case. That scar reminds me of crucifixion on his hands and feet. That hole in his foot reminds me of something that caused that hole or that scar. Tupas. So it's used in kind of a literal sense. So New American Standard, when it translates imprint or the place, is giving you the sense of the net, the the normal usage of the term kind of in a physical context. Notice Acts 7.44. Beverly? Now this is Stephen speaking. Keep reading. Okay, 
pattern. Tupas. Okay. Something representing something else. In other words, he saw a pattern in heaven and he's to make a tabernacle after that tabernacle in heaven. The earthly one is after that tupas, after that pattern. It represents something else. Prefigures something else. Philippians 3.17 Join the others in following by example of others and take no loss of them according to the pattern we were given. Okay, there's two words there. One of them is tupat. The second one, the pattern, something representing something else. In other words, the way you should live, duplicate that in the way that you live. Tupas. Now, none of those is used in this theological sense to describe this theological phenomenon. The next one that Jim's going to read in Romans 5.14, that one is used in this sense. And this gives us a, what we would call a type in this theological sense. Jim, Romans 5.14. Nevertheless, death reigns from Adam until Moses, even over those who have not sinned, like the defense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Okay. Who is a tupas, a type. In other words, there's something in Adam that prefigures that uh, by God's design illustrates, tells me something about a second Adam. The type, Adam is the type. We have an anti-type, or that that it represents, in Jesus. Jesus is the anti-type. See why this is a difficult area? This is not easily observed. This is not easily seen and introduces some interpretive problems here. So, obviously, you would have a variety of views. You have a viewpoint of some that develop types from just about any resemblance. In other words, you find any resemblance in the Old Testament to something in the New Testament, and you put it under the classification of types. That's the extreme view that I think is not warranted in Scripture. And some very good interpreters historically have done this, going all the way back to Origen. Now, remember, Origen is also the one that gave us allegorical interpretation, or at least the church. So it goes all the way back to Origen. Ambrose was another one. Jerome went to the extreme, using typology to that extreme. Just any resemblance from something in the Old Testament to something in the New, classified as typology. More recently, an excellent scholar, one that I've got commentaries of and I use and I I have high regard and respect. In fact, I even hesitate to give his name because I don't want to leave a negative impression. Arthur Pink. Heard of Arthur Pink? He sees types all over. In fact, his commentaries are almost typological, you might say. I think he goes too far. I think he's a good interpreter, I think he's a good scholar, but he would fall into this camp of any resemblance. And if you get his commentary on Genesis or Exodus, full of types. You have the other extreme, 
The other extreme would be that this is, this whole area of typology would be classified as forced exegesis. In other words, you're forcing the text into this this area. And obviously, this is a reaction to those that see resemblance everywhere. And in many cases, you do have forced exegesis. But this camp also tends to discount the whole area. In other words, throw out the baby with the bathwater type of thing. You might find some examples in some of the textbooks. And thirdly, there's obviously a moderating view that doesn't go to the extreme of seeing resemblance everywhere, but also does not throw out the whole area and tries to make some sense of it and and uh, give some guidelines in interpreting typology. As you can see, it, it, it begins to almost move in the direction of allegorical interpretation. So we need some guidelines. Probably the best resource, not only from this viewpoint, but the best resource that gives us some of those guidelines is uh, Roy Zook. So your course text. And what I'm going to give you that follows here that identifies types comes right out of Roy Zook's book. So if you want more detail, you can refer to it, but this comes out of his book. So these are the characteristics. In other words, how do you identify types? I think if they have all six of these characteristics, then you are safe to say this is a type. If it only has one or two, then probably it's not a type. If it has four or five uh, but not maybe the sixth one. It may or it may not but be guarded in classifying it. And personally, I look for all six of these characteristics. And if, it, if you have all six of these, then you have grounds for saying this is a biblical type. And without it, you have a varying degree of less confidence. So these are not only the characteristics, but I think you can use them to test to see whether you have types or not. Number one, obviously there has to be a resemblance. And as you can see, the first camp, any resemblance classifies it. Well, you need all the other remaining five as well, I think. So there has to be a similarity between something that you have in the Old Testament that corresponds in similarity to something you have in the New Testament. Whether it be a person, event, institution, thing. So the first thing, resemblance. Secondly, you have to have this prophetic element, prefiguring. Resemblance and prefiguring. And what we mean by that is you have a foreshadowing or you have a predictive aspect. That's why we classify this as a form of prophecy. Thirdly, and this is very, very important, you have to have design. In other words, and I would add divine design. This is part of what God intended. Who's the original author? Author's intent. In other words, this is God's design. Not just an analogy, not just an illustration, but it's intended as a type. Angus Green says the following, it is this previous design and this preordained connection which constitute the relation of type and anti-type. 
So this is what makes it a type. It's designed by God himself. There's lots of resemblances. There are a lot of illustrations. There are a lot of things that even prefigure some things. But if it's not by divine design, then you would not classify it as a type. Fourthly, there is a historical reality behind that Old Testament person, event, institution. So you don't take away any of the historical aspects of whatever that type is in the Old Testament. Zook adds a fifth, he calls it a heightening, and what he means by that is that that is illustrated or that that is typified is greater than the type. Greater and superior than the type. Higher level, higher plane. So the anti-type is higher or superior than the type, the heightening effect. And I think what's probably most important for us and from our perspective is number number six, designated as a type by the New Testament. So you have to look for a New Testament designation. In other words, something in the context that explicitly tells you that this is a type. One of the clearest ones is what Jim read in Romans 5, verse 14, where he uses the word, in its theological sense, that Adam is a type of Christ. How how would you say that Adam prefigures Christ? Well, in that... In Romans 5, he develops that. In fact, the whole paragraph develops that relationship between Christ and Adam. There's similarity. Remember we talked about there be uh, there's uh, comparison and there's also contrast intermixed in the Romans 5 passage where Adam is considered the first Adam and Christ is the second Adam. And the typology that, that Paul develops there is that one act plunged all of humanity into this desperate, sinful, condemned condition, and the one act of the second Adam brought the solution to what the first Adam brought. So you have a resemblance. In other words, one thing caused something else in both. Both affected all of humanity. In other words... What Christ did has an impact on all humanity and all have salvation available. So you have this resemblance. You have the prefiguring in that what Adam did prefigures what is to come in Christ. This is designed because it's actually specified. It's designated. So there's divine design. And it doesn't take away anything from what Adam did. It just says what what happened historically in Adam lays a foundation for what is going to happen in Christ, and you certainly have a heightening effect. In other words, you have the negative in Adam, and you have the solution in Christ. And in that verse 14, it's the New Testament designation. Make sense? Okay, so you might have resemblance, you might have prefiguring, you usually don't have design, but you you can have these, and those in that, first camp that I gave you, if you have this, then that's good enough for them. And they usually, and you might even have heightening, but if you don't have the designated New Testament passage, then you're on shaky grounds.
Beverly, you want to close for us?